Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 38, recorded on January 28th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It is good to be connected with you again. Hey, we get to start out this week talking about something that you and I chat about off-air quite a bit, and that's the future of open source-powered mobile devices. Yeah, and one of the great hopes for that is Plasma Mobile, and this week we've had a blog post from uh, one of the KDE community members about testing of ISOs for Plasma Mobile, and they are x86 ISOs, which you can run on either uh, KVM or QMU or VirtualBox, or, as I did, on an actual bit of hardware. And I've got the perfect device for this. It's a little 11-inch Asus VivoBook, which is touchscreen, but with the keyboard, obviously. And I tried it out, and I was really impressed with it. This is some action they're taking after they conducted a survey to see how users might be able to best contribute back to Plasma Mobile. And it was, let us test it. And so they've put some effort into making it, like Joe said, testable on multiple different virtualization platforms and on real hardware. I gave it a go in VMware Workstation, and it doesn't work. So that's one of the virtualization platforms you might skip right over. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty curious about your experience, Joe. Well, it boots saying that it's KDE Neon. And the thing is that because it's got the Linux kernel and it's got all of the, the standard desktop Linux hardware acceleration drivers and all that kind of thing, it means that you don't have any of the lag that you have with kind of ropey driver integration on mobile devices. And of course, you've got the power of the i3 processor as well. So it was very smooth and everything pretty much worked. Um, It's not really a desktop operating system, obviously. So it's not the kind of thing that you're going to install and keep. I just run it live off the USB stick. But everything just seemed to be working well. And I was quite surprised because the last time I tried it out on a mobile device, it was kind of working and not really that well. And yeah, this has got a lot of rough edges. As they say, uh, it's it's alpha quality. And I think that it is kind of decent alpha quality. Did you find the text readable and all of the touch targets tappable? Yeah. All that stuff worked perfectly, yeah. That is pretty impressive for an alpha. The other thing that strikes me is they are coming to the people a bit. So they've created a Plasma Mobile matrix room that uh, folks can give feedback. And they also have a Plasma Mobile telegram group, which people that are on mobile may be very likely to join to give them feedback. And then they have the traditional mailing lists and IRC rooms that an open source project tends to have. What I really like the best about this is the humble modest attitude that they have they're not coming out saying this is the most amazing thing ever they're coming out and saying we need people to test it we're working on this it's work in progress it's alpha quality and that makes me much more forgiving towards it if they tried to say it was a finished product then i'd be pretty down on it but it's not a finished product they they want the community to get involved with testing and making it better and yeah, I really do feel that it is the best hope for an interface, at least, in terms of a mobile operating system that's based on Linux. It also strikes me that this effort isn't tied to a particular hardware initiative, which, if you look back at previous attempts, it's almost always tied to a specific hardware's success or failure. And when that hardware succeeds or likely fails, then the contributions to the mobile operating system cease even when it's just contributions back upstream. Whereas this is a general mobile touch platform that is hardware agnostic, 
It just takes advantage of the Linux underpinnings. And so it could just continue on at a slow but steady and humble pace for years until the right device comes along to run it. Well, that right device may well be sooner than we think if Purism actually deliver on their promises. Yeah, after a couple of months, we have some news about what's going on with the Librem 5 phone. Purism has posted a Librem 5 phone progress report, and it mostly focuses around the design team and what they're working on about putting that team together and creating a unified look for PureOS devices. And there's hints of something I've heard of before in here, Joe, something familiar. Yeah, convergence. Mm, we've heard that word before, haven't we? Realistically, Joe, laptops, tablets, phones, it's not enough. Using GTK, Qt, not enough. Also need to have our own operating system and then, of course, make it converge. Yeah, but convergence is one of those words that doesn't really mean anything or it can mean so many different things. And I think that in the case of purism, what they mean by it is more a case of a consistent look and feel rather than devices that will act as a mobile device or a proper computer. Ah, we need a new term then. Well, whatever you want to call it, the fact is you're going to need to have GNOME running on the mobile device and the desktop pure OS. Otherwise, you're not going to have a consistent experience. And that's what's confusing about this, because they're very enthusiastic about Plasma Mobile, as am I. And they even say in this blog post that GNOME is kind of less advanced when it comes to mobile. And yet they're kind of having to keep both options open because of this convergence thing. And maybe the best strategy would just be to say, we'll have GNOME over here for the for the desktop operating system, and we'll have Plasma Mobile for the Librem 5. That seems like the smart approach for resource reasons, if nothing else. I don't know how many times as a community we're going to watch open source companies go down this path where they think that they can build the one true operating system that will work across all the devices that developers will want to run to, and meanwhile, larger companies in this space, <clears throat> Dell, <clears throat> Dell, <clears throat> they are succeeding because they're shipping vanilla Ubuntu strapped onto their hardware. And they're trying to innovate at the hardware level. And they're seeing a huge growth in the Sputnik product line because of that strategy. And it just seems on the other opposite end of the spectrum, in an attempt to differentiate, smaller OEMs are trying to build their own operating systems. But their customer base, Linux users, are smart enough to sit back and go, that's not sustainable. That's not even something that is in demand. So their own customer base is hip to what they're trying to do, and it never succeeds. And instead, you have companies, which Purism seems to be on the path to becoming one of these, unfortunately, that split their attention, and they become a jack-of-all, master of none. When you read this update, it is clear that they should be all in on KDE's Plasma Mobile. It's clear. They praise it. They have a line in here where they say, Purism's contribution to KDE may be generally focused on hardware integration and testing rather than design, because it's, it's good to go. They think it's just pretty much there. They're blown away by it. Then they talk about how GNOME is just this big pile of hurt that they're going to have to submit a bunch of patches upstream to make it work correctly. So that way, the tiny user base that uses PureOS will be able to run the same crazy desktop GTK applications on their phone. How does this make sense to anybody that's organizing this project? Well, I think the tendency is to be quite insular, isn't it? And to think that just because you and all your team are using PureOS, you want to have this convergence. And you're kind of assuming that every laptop that you're selling 
with PRS is having it kept on there when in reality I would have thought that most of the kind of people who want to buy a Linux laptop, uh, they have their own preferences about what Linux they want to use and what desktop environment and all the rest of it. So they want to customize it. Sure. And so I'd be very surprised. Well, I, I would like to learn the the reality. People who have bought a Purism laptop, have you kept PureOS on there or have you installed Arch or Ubuntu or Fedora or whatever it is that you normally use? Let us know at Linux Action News on the Twitter. I would be curious too, or linuxactionnews.com slash contact. That is a good data point to collect in. But in the meantime, if I could be hired as a consultant for a moment, I would advise this. If you want to differentiate, if you want to go all in on something, differentiate by shipping Plasma. Be the one vendor in this marketplace that's really killing it with Plasma. And if you want convergence, start with the mobile device. Nail the mobile experience. You will have more customers there than you've ever had with the laptops. And then you'll have demand to make Plasma work on your laptops. And that's where the convergence can happen. And QML and Qt and the Plasma desktop are all perfectly positioned to enable you to do this. You don't really end up differentiating yourself in the Linux market by shipping yet another GTK desktop. That's kind of boring at this point. You want to stand out to Linux users and ship something different? Build it on Plasma. Ironically, he says, as he's switching back to the GNOME 3 desktop this week. (laughs) Yeah. Well, another company that has heavily relied upon crowdfunding is Mycroft. And this week, the Kickstarter went live for Mycroft Mark II. And already it has smashed through its goal within a matter of hours. So this is definitely happening. And they've made a lot of promises here. They've said that they accept that last time they made some mistakes and they've learned from that. And $129, it's quite expensive for a voice assistant. Although one with a screen, it's not too bad. But they they are not messing around anymore. They're not pitching this as a development device. They're saying this is consumer-ready. They are making massive, massive promises here. And as much as I really want them to deliver on those, I am somewhat skeptical to say the least, I'm afraid. Yeah, they really do double down on the beam-forming microphones that take six microphone inputs, locate the person speaking, and then hone in on them. They talk about the two 10-watt speakers that are in this thing. And they talk in here about how they worked with one of their partners to build in acoustic echo cancellation, noise reduction, and other technologies to help Mycroft hear you while it's really blaring loud sounds. This is, in my opinion, what the Amazon show could have been. This is what Amazon should have built. It is, I can see why it's doing well. It's promising room-filling sound, open-source-backed software, and a new screen interface that looks pretty good. Yeah, and integrating with what Mozilla's been doing with Project Common Voice, so they're no longer having to rely on proprietary backends. It all, on paper, sounds amazing, but the question that is on my lips is, what are beans? You know, we've seen that video that Popey made of the Mark I, and it was terrible. And that was the software's fault. And okay, it's come along a little way since then, but realistically, how much cash are they going to need to have injected from this Kickstarter to to bring that software up to a standard where it can compete with the Amazon one and the Google one and the Apple one? It just seems far-fetched to me. That's my primary concern as well is 
the one question they're not really answering in their previous blog posts and in this Kickstarter post is what is significantly different about this unit that will improve the software situation? Because if it was simply just hardware resources, then putting the Mycroft software on a faster Raspberry Pi would have made it better. And we all know that's clearly not the case. So significantly, what's changed about the software? In the video, the voice sounds different. It sounds a little newer as well. And they're using language that is somewhat disingenuous. And so that is a bit of a red flag on a Kickstarter for me. I'll give you an example. AI and voice technology are too important to our collective future to remain the property of the Silicon Valley giants. The Mark II by Mycroft is the device challenging them. Which, that's a pretty big exaggeration to begin with right there. That's a lot to swallow. But then they, later on, they lean into how the community is building this device and how it's open source. A key differentiator, they say, is that Mycroft's skill list is infinitely growing, Thanks to our robust developer community, they're building skills that serve everyone's needs, not just for the corporations behind them. In addition to standard skills like weather, updates, and timers, you'll find these ones. And then they list skills that are backed by corporations like Philip Hughes, YouTube, Pandora, NPR, Roku, Facebook, Wolfram Alpha. You get the picture. Their front and center skills are, quote, for the corporations behind them. And so they say they have an infinite list of skills. From what I could tell, there is 31, 32 official skills that are created by Mycroft now. There are 16 community skills that are considered functioning. 16. As of January 28, Amazon's voice assistant, the Echo, has 24,000 skills. And if you look at just the skills that are rated four stars and above, there are 5,201 of them. Compare that to Google Assistant, which has 1,800 different actions available right now. So when they're using language that this is the device to challenge the Echo or the Google Assistant, and that they have an infinite list of skills, that's a lot of exaggeration for me to swallow. It sounds like they're selling a little too hard. Well, yeah, they are definitely exaggerating. And you kind of have to do that for PR, don't you? If you want to sell the units and get the money in and then hire the developers. But I, I just really want to give this the benefit of the doubt because they did make some mistakes and they, they have said that they've learned from them, from the manufacturing to the logistics of actually sending them out and all of that stuff. It sounds like it's going to be good. And the mock-up, the, the voice was working really well. It answered really quickly. If they can actually deliver that, then I think the skills list will grow very quickly. And okay, they've exaggerated for now, but... We need something like this. I personally don't, but there are so many people who yeah. use these voice assistants. It is right. a growing market, and we need to have something good and an open source. The problem I have with that analysis is you could say those same exact words for the first Kickstarter they did. Nothing's changed in that regard. They're still exaggerating. This is still something we need. It's like they play to our yeah. emotional open source Linux user buttons here. It's the same reason why convergence devices are getting funded. There is a certain category of dream device that us geeks have, and we're willing to fund it. But don't you think that they are best placed with all the experience that they've got with the Mark I and now going forward with this Mark II? They, they are surely in the best position to have some sort of open source alternative to Amazon and, and Google and Apple. 
Hmm, maybe. Maybe. That's sort of like saying that OpenBSD is an alternative to Windows and macOS. Uh, the reality is, is that the third player in the market is either going to be Microsoft with Cortana or Apple with the HomePod. And the first player is so far ahead right now, Amazon. And Google had a huge, they just released numbers, 40% of assistants sold over the holiday season were Google Assistant devices. So Google's seeing a huge growth in their assistant. A distant third is going to be HomePod or Cortana. And then maybe far off in the distance, there's a, there's a great spot for Mycroft. I, I hate that you're right, but I just I can't argue with you anymore. If they could answer a few fundamental questions, what's significantly different about this software stack that's going to make it better? Uh, I would love to know more about what drives that screen and how that's created. If they had more to offer when it came to software that was a companion that would run on the desktop and an app that would run on the phone, and so I could have one centralized Mycroft server, these would be pretty significant differences that might appeal to businesses or small groups of people or open source projects. But as it stands right now, I, I'm not seeing the market appeal. I wish the open source private argument was a winner in this category. But the market has so clearly demonstrated they're, they're willing to put these units from Google in their house. Privacy is on the total end of the requirement spectrum. And they're going at this all in, positioning this as privacy respecting because it's open source, community powered because it's open source. But the market doesn't give any consideration to that when they're buying these lady tubes. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think that there is a potential market for this. I don't think that it's um, going to be anywhere near the, the market for the, the Amazon and Google ones. But I think that there are enough people who care about this stuff within our community to to make it a viable business as long as it's good enough. Yeah. Um, because there's people like you who want to control your lights and you know I heard you talking about wanting to turn your heater on from a bed and all that kind of stuff. So there there is a market for it um but it just they have to deliver on their promises. If they don't deliver on the promises this time then that's it it's finished. <laughs> last.ting.com. Go there to support this show and get $25 in service credit if you bring a device. And if you don't have one or you're ready for something new, they'll give you $25 off a device. Think of that in a moment. I, I'll tell you more about that. But first, let me just sort of set up the ground rules here. Ting is just simple mobile. It's $6 for the line, and then you just pay for what you use. And here in the States, they have CDMA and GSM networks. So you just pick whichever one is superior in your location. Nationwide coverage, no contracts, pay for what you use. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay, plus Uncle Sam's cut. For me, it's uh, it's so handy to have a MiFi that I turn on and off from time to time when I'm traveling. It's also very simple to do that with Ting. They have a great control panel, and I can go in there and see how much the MiFi is using, see if I'm comfortable with that. I can set usage alerts. It's super good functionality. But remember I was telling you about $25 off a device? Well, on Ting's blog right now, and do me a favor, start by going to last.ting.com, so that way they know we sent you there. Over on Ting's blog, they have Hack Your Phone Plan, a smartphone plan for under $20. It's essentially $16 a month plus the taxes, so it, you know, it works out to be around 20 bucks. It's not a pipe dream. It's something that they have a blog post about right now, and you can learn more about it. Start by going to last.ting.com. Okay, so it's only a few months till we get Ubuntu 18.04, the LTS, and this week, Will Cook has 
announced that that is going to default to Exorg. It's not going to default to Wayland like 1710 did. Wayland will be available as a session, but the headline here is that they're going back to Exorg for the LTS, which is going to be used for five years, which you cannot argue with the logic of it, I don't think. Right. They released 1710 in October of 2017. They shipped it with Wayland by default, and they've been collecting usage information, bug reports, and they said they've just simply decided to ship Xorg by default now since this is an LTS. And like Joe said, Wayland is still installed. But the, they broke it down to three main reasons why Xorg is going to be the default in that dropdown. Number one, again, LTS releases, typically larger percentage of businesses use these. Screen sharing in software like WebRTC services, Google Hangouts, Skype, anything where you have a button to share your screen, that's not working under Wayland yet. It may still be a ways off. And that's a big feature that corporate desktops use. Remote desktop control, like RDP and VNC, they don't really work so well. They do work under Xorg, though. And then number three, which is actually the number one issue that affects me, under Xorg, when the GNOME shell crashes, it just reloads. Because Xorg is still running. But under Wayland, GNOME shell is the compositor. It is doing all of the heavy lifting and if it crashes, your entire graphical session's gone. It's a pretty damning indictment of GNOME, isn't it, that you have to have a different display server because it crashes so often. They must have had to tiptoe around this issue pretty carefully with their new re-established relationship with GNOME because they write in the post, the point about when things go wrong with GNOME is an architecture issue of GNOME shell and Mutter. And the only way to fix it is a massive architecture change or using Xorg. Yeah, which, as I said, damning indictment, and uh, one of the many reasons I use XFCE, I'm afraid. Yeah, although GNOME Shell 4 may address this issue, there's currently discussions in place to re-architect GNOME so that it's more modular, but if they did that, it would break extensions horribly. Yeah, but the thing is that Wayland is the future, and we need to start moving over to it, and we need to start testing it properly, but... A five-year LTS for Ubuntu, I don't think, is the right place to do that. They they tried with 17.10, and they will almost certainly go back in 18.10. But the, the LTS, you need it to work absolutely solidly. And, okay, Exorg is old, and you've got these security problems and uh, all sorts of issues, but it's been working for the last 20-odd years. Yeah. And it's been working for the entire history of Ubuntu, so give it another two years and hopefully at that point it will be solid enough. But I think you have to admire the fact that they just are willing to accept this and say, no, it's not ready for the LTS and we're not going to have this new flashy thing. We're going to stick with the old thing because we know it works solidly. And you know, they tried it and it's data driven. They gave it a go in 1710, which was the logical place to try it. And at the end of the day, if you still want to be a Wayland warrior, you can drop that box down, choose Wayland, and submit bug reports all day long. Yeah, or just enjoy no screen tearing or all the other benefits if your hardware and software setup supports it. So, yeah, it's kind of the best of both worlds. And we're only talking about a default, which is what most people will use. But anyone who wants to use Wayland, at least it's in there to, to use if you want. Now, here's a question for you, Joe. What do you think is going to resolve first? Fully fixed from Spectre and Meltdown or Wayland shipping default on most Linux desktops? That is a very tricky question. Meltdown, I think, is easier, but Spectre, 
that could be five years maybe before that's properly sorted out or even longer really because we need new hardware don't we by the looks of things well perhaps the middle finger of mr linus torvalds can help speed things along he was in the news again this week for telling intel how he feels about their current approach to fixing all of this yeah he's not happy is he (laughs) to say the least no he's essentially calling intel out for shipping mitigation as a feature that you can turn on or off And um, he suspects that most people will leave it off for the performance improvements of it. And he thinks it's utter garbage that they're doing this. The patch quality, the code quality, says, are awful. And Intel's management must be insane if they think they can turn this thing around into a feature of future processors for the next few years. Yeah, and he even goes so far as to speculate that they're doing it this way because they don't want to have to recall millions of processors. This is a pretty big statement to make against Intel because they must have a pretty close working relationship with the Linux kernel development team. There's a lot of code in the Linux kernel for Intel processors, plus their networking stack, their graphics stacks, all the controllers that Intel makes. It's a pretty key relationship. And I wasn't really sure how Intel was going to respond to this because they're essentially calling them out on a lot of different issues from trying to deceive consumers, not fixing this thing for years, and like Joe said, trying to avoid a recall. That's inflammatory stuff. Was Intel going to sue? Was Intel going to release some sort of statement? And they seem to have released a response, at least. They wrote a response to the register saying that they take the feedback of industry partners seriously. And they are actively engaging with the Linux community, including Linus, as they seek to work together on a solution. <laughs> Read, we're lawyering up. No, I don't know. They, they've got to be pretty scared, haven't they, Intel, at this point? Because there are a lot of lawsuits, class action lawsuits and stuff that are brewing. And they, this could maybe possibly take them down. Jesus, AMD sending you a check now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've been saying it for a while yeah. that Intel need to get on this um, ARM train because otherwise ARM in the server room is going to eat their lunch. Right. And it's not going to happen for a, a while, but combine it with this. And okay, I'm not saying that uh, this year they're going to go bust, but you can see a, a sort of fairly steady decline if they don't step up. And I I think they just ought to start manufacturing ARM processors, licensing those and making them. That would be a good revenue stream for them. And make some x86 processors that don't have these vulnerabilities in them. Yeah, you might be onto something. I mean, they have sort of missed the boat on mobile and they can't really pull the trigger on graphics to the point where they're even now working with AMD to ship AMD graphics with Intel CPUs. It is sort of remarkable where they've gotten to. The last thing they've really remained good at is desktop CPUs and now we have this problem. And the other thing this is exposing is how slow Intel is to make changes. It's exposing this slow design and build process that has gotten murky over the years, and it's going to prevent them from responding to this issue for several years. Some people like Linus are speculating three years. Well, yeah, if you think about it, the time it takes to design and manufacture a CPU, they've probably got the next two or even three generations already designed and underway with all the the testing and prototyping and all the rest of it. And so you can't really expect them to make major changes to them until, well, maybe they might scrap the third one out or something, but they they have CPUs to ship. And you talked about um, desktop. Well, I think one of the major areas for them is um, 
Xeons, isn't it, for servers? Yeah. And that is where I think they're in the most danger of being taken over by these ARM clusters. In the meantime, you can pry my six-core i7 CPU out of my cold, dead hands. It's a great desktop chip for me. Yeah, it is. Let's hope that they can find some way around these uh, vulnerabilities and have it not impact performance too much. But one camp that didn't get any heads up about these vulnerabilities were the BSDs. Yeah, that's a bit embarrassing. It makes you wonder, where do they rank? And uh, CSO Magazine is picking up on this thread and having some fun with it and speculates that perhaps the BSDs are slowly dying and it's just the BSD developers who don't realize it. Yeah, I had to put this in just to troll the BSD people. <laughs> I, I think that it's it's quite speculative, isn't it? It's saying that there's not many developers. The reason that there's not many bugs found in the BSD kernels is that there just aren't many people looking. And that if you look at the number of developers, it is significantly lower than Linux. And that there's there's not many people using BSD in production. Uh, the odd one like Netflix, you know, just small companies, you know. Uh, I, I don't know. It's it seems a bit, um, it's kind of tabloidy. But I just thought it would be funny to troll the BSD people. You know, I looked into it, and uh, so the whole article really hinges around a talk that happened um, to the 34C3 conference in Germany at the end of December. The director of penetration testing at IOActive held this talk. And it it was really more about promoting his company. And so that the talk itself was a little already off the mark. And then this article is based on it. But this individual from IOActive who was giving the talk uh, said that he looked around at the different BSD kernel vulnerability reports and saw how they compared to Linux. And he thought to himself, how come there's only a handful of BSD security kernel bugs released every year as an advisory? I'm, I'm going through the notes. I only see a couple a year. Can that be? Could it be their code is so good? Or could it be because no one is looking? So he himself started digging into the code, and he found 115 kernel bugs across three BSDs, including 30 for FreeBSD, 25 for OpenBSD, and 60 for NetBSD. He said many of these were low-hanging fruits. He, he told the different BSD projects, and they all responded pretty well. But his core argument was, well, look at all these that I just happened to find when I just casually looked. The BSDs responded with, None of these bugs really matter with the exception of a couple of them. They don't really have any actual way to exploit them. And we don't even consider these to be security issues. So I remember back in the day, you and Alan would talk quite a lot about Netflix's infrastructure and the boxes that they put in ISP um, data centers and stuff. Do you have a feeling for why Netflix went for BSD rather than Linux? FreeBSD is famous for a smoke-and-fast network stack, and that wouldn't surprise me if that appealed to them particularly. But the thing is, there is also a ton of Linux at Netflix. And if you look at a lot of Netflix's open-source projects, the majority of the code that they release is code that's meant to run on Linux. So I think there is a fair amount of FreeBSD in the storage infrastructure level and in these boxes that they put out at the ISPs, which have cached versions of the most popular Netflix movies, those run BSD. But the back-end stuff, the web servers, the databases, the algorithms that figure out what you like, that's Linux. I didn't know that. I thought that they were mostly FreeBSD. But it, it seems that you hear less and less of that these days, don't you? Big companies using it. And Linux is just so popular now and it used in 
everything from smartphones to supercomputers, as we always say, that it just feels that there's not really that relevance anymore apart from ZFS, which you can get on Ubuntu and you can make work on Linux. And most of the software that's running on Linux is permissively licensed anyway, and the kernel's GPLv2, which is not that restrictive. So I'd, I personally can't see any real argument. I know there'll be BSD people who have got a ton of arguments for it, but I don't know about dying, but becoming less and less relevant maybe is uh, the best way to put it with BSD. I'm not so sure. I seem to recall articles about Linux dying off back in the day. And one of the aspects of the BSD license is you don't really ever have to say or contribute anything. And so you can take and run that code and you could run it for years. Like look at the Yahoo infrastructure, for example. They contribute open source code, but they don't really have to make a big deal out of it. Contrast that when, say, Google releases Android source code backup stream to the Linux kernel. That's a big deal. They're required to do it by the user license, and the entire process is out in the open, so it's there for everyone to see. So I think that also plays a factor here. The GPL sort of forces all of this out in the open, which means companies using Linux, by that very nature, get more exposure. And you're going to definitely hear from some folks that say the license matters, and that BSD license or those MIT license, my, my co-host on Coda Radio, he prefers to release under the MIT license. He has a very, and we've talked about it a lot on the show. He, he prefers to not release under the GPL, and he has a lot of reasons for that. Well, it seems that he's not alone, because increasingly that's what people seem to be going for. It's, I think, the most popular license on GitHub, isn't it, MIT? Yeah, I do believe I read that. And you know, Joe, that's why we say you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes where we talk about Linux and open source every single week. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And please consider supporting the entire network. We have some fun stuff in store for 2018, and we could use your help. Patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.